Hey, we're glad to see you this morning. So glad to have you at Hope. Grab your Bibles today or your device. Turn to the book of John chapter 6. You have some notes. At the top of your note is a QR code too that you can go to what we call Dive In. Written a little something for you to read this week with some scriptures and some questions for you to have as a discussion with, well, with yourself or you between you and God or with your family or a roommate. But we want you to, to take part in our Dive In also that's available to you online on our website. So I have a question as we start this morning. And in here, it's a big question. It's a huge question. What's the greatest need of your life? What is the greatest? Now, now I know that you're in church, so you tend to want to act spiritual, right? Yes, yeah, you know, you want to throw something out really spiritual and godly to me. So let's just kind of, let's, let's be real for a moment, all right? What's the, what is the biggest need of your life? Now, none of us are really unique. We're all, all basically the same. So what's the biggest need of your life? Somebody yell out something to me. Yeah. What? <laughs> what is, somebody yell something out. Oh, there it is. I was waiting for that. Money. Yes. You're afraid to say it. So, so here is the thought. Okay. And there's a lot of other things, I'm sure. But how many of you could use a little more money in your life? Raise your hand this morning. Raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Look around with those that are not raising their hand because those are the ones that want to give you a love offering before you leave. Okay. Right? Yes. This is God's house. Let's share it. It all belongs to Jesus. So open the wallet and be generous, right? Yes. Yeah, we could all use a little more money in our life. That's a need. True. That's a need. What we're going to do over the next two weeks as we journey through John chapter 6, and listen, it's a journey within the journey of the book of John because it is 71 verses in this chapter. You say, Mark, are you preaching all 71 verses this morning? No, I am not. I am not. I'm only preaching 15. Can I hear an amen on that one? Yes. Yeah, thank you. So, but, but it does answer that question of what the greatest need is in our life. And so some of you are here and you say, oh, Mark, the greatest need in my life is my marriage to be fixed or, you know, Lord's got to help me with these kids that God has blessed me with because right now they're not a real blessing in my life. And, and so the final, you know, my finals are approaching at school and I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm keeping my head above the water, and that's about all I can do academically right now in, in my academic life. And, and so, you know, I'm working on a relationship, but the relationship, no matter how hard I work it, it seems not to work out. And this job is going to be the death of me if God doesn't perform some kind of miracle and kill my boss or whatever that miracle might be that you're praying for. I hope none of the staff is praying that over me this morning. I hope they're not. But yes, those are real needs. Let me say that before we start. Those are real needs, not to kill your boss, but those are real needs, valid needs, absolutely, yes. But they're not the greatest need of your life. They're not the greatest need of your life. Neither is money. It's not. You see what life says to us, and life tries to dictate to us what that need is all the time. Life says, hey, well, then maybe you need a partner to kind of complete your life, and so you need a husband, you need a wife, and some of you are saying, Mark, husband and wife, I'm not even thinking. I'm just fasting for a girlfriend right now in my life kind of deal, you know? And, and some of you are looking for companionship. And if you're really looking for just companionship, get a dog. They're great companions. They really are. They're, they, they're great companions. Don't get a cat because they never know whether you're in the house or not. But, you know, get a dog. And all the cat lovers go, ooh, yeah, I understand that. But 
when you lay all of those things out, they're all going to betray you at some point in life. You say, Mark, that's a terrible thing to say. But it's true. They're going to betray you either by sin or they're going to betray you simply by abandonment or they're going to betray you by death itself because they're all of those things that we involve people, they're going to die at some point. They are. Listen, those are good things, but they're not ultimate things. That's what we have to understand today, that they're not ultimate things, that good things can become ultimate, and that's where the problem is. That See, we have this general hope in life that these things are going to fix the things that are broken within us. That's the hope of our life. The hope is that they're going to fix these, what we think are the greatest needs of our lives. And so what happens is that general hope in our life would replace ultimate hope. And when general hope has replaced ultimate hope, then we have misplaced hope. That's why we have expectations of things, and we become disappointed. Because the expectations cannot meet up to that of our hope for those things. They just can't bear up under the weight. And we've seen this through the study through the book of John and the people that are following Jesus around. Because why? They're placing their hope in miracles. They follow him. They keep talking about the signs that he does. They're placing hope in miracles, but their hope is not found in the miracle worker. And so it's like you go through life, And you're chasing something that you can never catch like wind. It just doesn't happen. So what do we need? What is the greatest need of our life? And I'm going to make a statement that seems somewhat ethereal. And it seems like something you can't wrap your hands and your mind around. But you can in just a moment. But the greatest in our life is the glory of God. It's his magnitude. It's his might. It's his power within our lives. Because you and I were designed for that. That is the way God wired us. That is the way God created you and I to experience his glory within our lives. Not in some ethereal way, but yet our hearts are restless for him. That's why this morning that you got up whatever time that you did, right? And the bed is so warm and comfy. You thought, you know what? I could just lay here and I could just worship like at the first church of the bed springs. Man, I could do that, right? Yes. I, if you got a TV in your room, you click that thing on, man, and you could watch you some preaching on television. I would be very comfortable here. Get some co- coffee or hot chocolate. You look at the temperature. Well, you know, it's like 50 degrees or so. For us Southerners, 50 degrees, you wear a coat, right? It's cold. All the Northerners think we're wimps. I understand that. You think, you know, we wear a coat when it's 50 below, but yet we're cold. So you thought, man, I could stay here. But something causes you to get out of the bed, and it's more than guilt. Something causes you to get dressed, to get in your car, and to come here. And what that is, what what happens in your life is this, that there's something in your heart, there's something in your life that you need that nothing in this world can satisfy. Not even a miracle, not even a miracle could satisfy that. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to work our way through chapter 6 because it's really going to help us to understand what the greatest need of our life. So we start in John chapter 6 and verse 1. It says this, And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Look at the statement. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They have, they have this great need in their life, but it's displaced hope. Because they want miracles, but they don't want the miracle worker. And it's going to become very evident to us. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Listen, Jesus has healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Let's bring us up to date as what's going on here. He has healed the son of the official of Herod's court, even though this child was 15 miles away. 
that Jesus speaks the word. He's healed. And through this official of Herod's court, he goes home, his child as well. All of his family come to believe in Christ. It's, it's an amazing narrative. Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman at the well in the hottest part, the noon of the day. And he not only speaks life into her as far as that of, of grace and mercy, but he provides for her living water there at Jacob's well. It's a very powerful story. She goes back. She tells all the people in her town, hey, you got to come and see the guy who has told me everything about myself, but there's no condemnation in her life. The town members come. They beg Jesus to stay for two more days, and many of them come to believe in Christ. So there is this track record of miracles. He's turned water into wine, and there is this common thread woven throughout the book of John. That people follow him because they see the signs that he's doing. Can I tell you, nothing is wrong with signs. Nothing is wrong with miracles. Nothing is wrong with you asking God or believing God for a miracle in your life. But when what's dangerous is this, that when your faith terminates on those miracles, when your faith begins to terminate on, on those signs, because unless... Uh, if that's your hope only in those kinds of things, and you come to God and you say, God, listen, if you will do this for me, and we make deals with the Lord, you know, God, if you'll do this for me, if you'll fix my relationship, Lord, if you'll help me get a great grade on this final next week or whenever that is, God, if you help me, I didn't study, but I'm just going to believe for you to help me to get a great grade. Can I tell you, and I tell you, I love you, I'll pray with you at the end, but you're in trouble, okay? Understand that, right? You, you, better, you better head out of here and go study. And so, here, and we do that, and nothing is wrong with that, but yet when our faith terminates on those things, that's when it becomes trouble within our lives. Because unless our hope is found in Christ this morning and who He is, everything else in this world is displaced hope. It's displaced hope. So there's three big ideas this morning as we go through this teaching together. The first is this, the real of our lives is the how. The ideal of our lives is the where. And we will kind of give you some details on that in a moment, and you'll understand what that means. That our physical body tells us we need fish and bread, but our hearts have always craved the lamb. That Christ is king, but of his own sovereign design and not of ours. So let's work into our story this morning. It's verse 4. It says, now the Passover. I underline that in my Bible because that's very important that we understand when Jesus is meeting with these people. And that's part of the great miracle that he that takes place that day. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes. Then he's seeing a large, large crowd was coming toward him. And Jesus said to Philip, here's the where, here it is, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then verse 6, I underlined that because that's always surprised me. He said this to test him. It's a test. In the middle of this great crowd, this hungry group of people, and Jesus has suggested that we make a lunch for them, that we create a Hebrew buffet for them of fish and bread, you know, kind of thing, and then... All of a sudden, John says, hey, this is a test. He tells us something here that Philip does not know. This is important. And so he said, there's a test. For he, speaking of Christ himself, knew what he, speaking of Philip, would do. That if you ever wondered why God tests us for a moment. Let me, let me just move away from the text for just a second. If you've ever wondered why God tests us. If you've ever wondered why Ever wonder why those things take place in our life and what they are for? Can I tell you what they are not for? They are not for the sake of God. 
Because this tells us right here that Jesus knows everything. He knows how we're going to respond before we respond. So who is it for? It's for you and I. It's to reveal our own hearts to us. We are short-sighted in our own lives when it comes to our own hearts. And so verse 7 said, Philip answered him, here's the how. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So the where and the how. The where is this? Jesus is asking Peter, hey, where can we buy bread? Why does, or Philip, why does he ask Philip that? I'll tell you why he asked Philip that. Because Philip is from this region. It's a fishing region on the Sea of Galilee. This is where Philip is from. So he asked Philip, hey, where can we go buy bread? But it's a deeper question than that. It's more than just Philip getting out his iPhone and Googling where the closest bakery is. It's a lot more than that. It is. Because what, what we're realizing is this, that John is revealing something Philip does not know, that this is a test. That what? There's a greater need in his heart for something. Oh, that speaks to all of us. There's a greater need in his heart for something. But here's the how. All Philip can think about is how, is exactly the way he responds to Jesus. His response to is a calculated response. I mean, it's very detailed in, in, in what he says to him. Yes, it's not some answer that he has kind of pulled off the top of his head, but it's well, it's well thought out. He's used some kind of algorithm or something, you know, to, to make his case with Jesus. Hey, it's going to take 200 days wages. It's about 200 denarius for us to feed these people. And even if we're able to feed them, Jesus, come on. We can't give them a real meal. We can only give them a taste. Yes. And so we all do this at times with God. We want to bring God up to speed. God, hang on. Let me tell you kind of how things really are. As if God doesn't know. As if somehow that God is clueless as to what is going on in our life. So we have to kind of bring God up to speed. God, this will cost more than you could ever imagine. Really, you're saying that to Jesus, fully God, fully man, the incarnate Christ, or is this sarcasm on Philip's part? Is Philip saying to him, Jesus, listen, I understand what you want to do, but man, this would break the bank. There's just not enough money in our account to do that. It's the difference between the where question that Jesus asked him, where can we buy bread? And the how statement that how or this just can't work because it costs way too much. And so I think our mind first goes to this. Can we question God? And I want to tell you, yes, absolutely. You can have those hard conversations with God. God is big enough to have those conversations with you. So let's kind of level the ground for a moment this morning. And let's talk about that for just a second so that you kind of feel like you're in the right place. How many of you in the room? Here it goes. And this is you got to raise your hand and be honest, right? This is church. So you got to be honest here. And, and so here's the thing. How many of you over the last week or maybe two weeks or so have somehow questioned God? You have questioned God in some area of your life. Put your hand up if you've ever done that. Oh, look, that's a good. So so put your hand down. So we're in the right place. This is what Philip is doing. But it's not some off of the, uh, you know, off the cuff kind of response. No, no. He's done a formula. He's, he's done the math behind this. He's, he's thought this absolutely through. And here is the thought. Even in the shadow of all these miracles, even in the shadow of all of these miracles that God has been performing, 
that Philip doubts what Jesus is able to do. He forgets that he took a few containers of water and he created over 100 gallons of wine, the good stuff too. So he forgets that. It's that place between the where when God speaks to us and the how when we begin to doubt what God can do or who God is that we struggle with. It's where we struggle. It's the human condition. So let me, let me kind of illustrate this for you this morning. And so what I need is I need, I need two volunteers, okay? And, and I know, don't, don't let me voluntold you, okay? So I need two volunteers. Do I have one? I have one. I'm looking around and I have no hands. Oh man, what if I gave you a hundred bucks if you came up here to do this, right? Okay, here's one. That's perfect. Yes, perfect. Okay, Jason, your choice. You can be Philip or you can be Jesus. Which one you want? Oh, you want to be Philip? Okay, go, go, go over there. You don't, you, this, is, this is, oh, here's Jesus now. <laughs> this is right. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And his shirt says, y'all need me. It does. Look, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Dude, this was the Lord that, there you go, brother. Give me a Jesus pose. There you go. All right. And a Philip pose. Whatever that is. I don't know. You know, right? This, that's it. Okay. Okay, here's the thing. All right, here's the thing. And, I, and we kind of work this out. This will help you to understand what I think we're being taught here. And it's prob- it could be a lesson that maybe you've never seen in this text before. It's, it's something that, that, that is somewhat new to me. Because here's what we have we have the where when Jesus speaks. And the where in our lives is the ideal of, of that. And have you seen this like a pose somewhere or something in the back of the family Bible? Okay, I don't know. The where of our life is, is that that's the ideal of our life, right? That's where God wants us to be, where God says, hey, where are you going to find bread? And, and our response is, oh, Lord, you're the master of all things. And so you just guide me and direct me. And if it's 200 denarii or 2 million, it doesn't matter because you're Jesus and you're God. That's the where. And, and what that is, that's the, that's the ideal of our life. Over here with Jason, who is Philip, this is the real of our life. And it has nothing to do with you holding. I know, I know you're holding a fishing rod. Somebody said that before. I should have pointed that out. This is the real of our lives over here. This is where we are. This is in response to, hey, you know, where do we buy bread for 5,000 plus people? And the real of our lives is how? How can that happen? How does that take place? How can you have enough money? And so we are all somewhere in this journey between here of that of how is this going to happen and where that of Christ, that we find ourselves somewhere in the journey, moving back and forth, fluctuating in this space between the two. And many of you find yourself right here in the middle, right? You do. You're in the middle of that where you know something about Jesus, but yet your humanity is screaming out, how is this going to work out in my life? And so you find yourself here. Before you beat yourself up about being in the middle of this thing, let me tell you something. It's this. It's okay right now for you to be in the middle because what the middle says to all of us in this room is this. You're on the journey. That is good. You're on the journey. God is using you. Remember, when he says to Philip, as we're going to talk about in a moment, this is a test There is a reason for all of this. 
Because what God is doing, he's taking us and he's moving us from this area of of that of how he continually moves us as we get to know his character and nature, as we tell you all the time. And that's what John is about. As we begin to know his character and nature, God is moving us closer and closer to him so that when he asks us that question of simply where you're going to respond with, Lord, you're the master of all things. You just create the bread if you want or create the money and I'll go buy it because I trust you. So he's moving us along this line in spiritual growth to eventually we're leaning in on him. Yes. No, isn't that? That's my John the Beloved pose right there. You know, I'm leaning in on you. Yes. So where are you in this process? Yeah. You see, some of you, there, there, there's, I know that we're all different levels here this morning. I understand. But for some of you, hey, you're not even on the journey yet. And I, and I understand that. You are. You're still wondering about this whole Jesus thing to begin with. Man, you're in the right place. For some of you, you're on the journey. And maybe you're here. You're closer to Philip over here. Or, or maybe you're closer to Jesus over here. And then at some point, something happens and you kind of move back and forth. The beautiful thing about all this is that when John says to us, that something that Phil doesn't know, that this is the test. There's a purpose for that in his life. And the purpose of the test is to reveal something in the heart of Philip that he can't see for himself. I'm a disciple. Man, I've been hanging with Jesus. Man, we've been sitting around a campfire at night. We, we've been making s'mores together. And, you know, and, and so uh, look at me. I should know all these kinds of things. Yet what the test has done in Philip's life is that has revealed that this is where Philip is, but yet what Jesus wants to do out of his love for Philip is to bring him here. Does that make sense to you? That explains why some of the things are taking place in your life this morning. That explains where you are, that there's a test. Now, keep this in mind. Jesus never tempts us to sin because in him is no darkness at all. So he never tempts us, but he does test us. And the beauty of a test is this. It expresses the heart of God, that God loves you enough to the point that he wants to reveal to you what's in your heart so that that can bring change in your life. Where are you? Are you here with Philip? Are you closer here? Oh, now tomorrow it may be here. Tomorrow it may be here. That's, but when you read this text, and just a moment, as, as we read all this, you're not going to find that Jesus chastises Philip. Why? Because it's a moment for growth in his life. Boy, take that and lay that over your heart in your life this morning and what God is doing to you. So give me your best Jesus pose again this morning before you leave. Oh, I like that. Yes. That's like, that's a very modern day Jesus. And your favorite Philip pose? You're already in it. Okay, he's already in it. Perfect. There you go. I want to say, guys, thank you so much. Let's give them a big hand for helping me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Perfect. Y'all need me. I love the shirt. That's awesome. Jesus. So let's talk about testing for a moment in our lives. Because it's something we all struggle with. If we're going to talk about testing, then we have to talk from the book of James for a moment because it tells us a lot about what God does through the tests of our lives. In the book of James, chapter 1, starting with verse 2, it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. The word trials is the same word for test of various kinds, he said, when you're in the middle, wherever you are, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives grace generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. couple of things about testing in your life. The first is this. It's the pathway to maturity. It is. How do you grow? How do you grow? Can I tell you how we grow in life? We grow by falling and failing and stumbling. That is a great school that we find ourselves in at times that we grow in that. If you have found growth in your life intellectually, if you found growth in your life spiritually or just as a person in general, does it come from everything in your life going your way? It does not. It doesn't. So we grow in our lives through sometimes of failure and stumbling and tripping in life. Yes. You learn by thinking that you're, you, you learn, you learn by thinking that you're right, then learning that you're wrong. That's it. You learn by thinking you're right, then learning that you're wrong. It's you telling Jesus when he says to you, Hey, let's go find a place to buy bread to feed 5,000 plus people. And all of a sudden you have this smart idea that you're going to tell Jesus, How are we going to do that? Because we can't afford that, Jesus. That's what it is. And then in the process of growth, what happens is this. You're standing over here on the side with your hands in your pocket and you're watching as Jesus takes five loaves of barley bread and two fish and he creates the ultimate Hebrew buffet that he feeds all these people, 5,000 plus people. And you're looking over there and you're thinking, how dumb could I be to ever say that to Jesus? And you're kicking yourself because you failed. Can I tell you, listen to me, it's an opportunity for growth in your life. It's an opportunity for you to grow. It is. Well, does that mean I go out and do something stupid on purpose so I can? No, that's not what we're saying at all. No. Listen, enough dumb stuff will come your way without you trying to do it. Isn't that right? Yes, that's true. It's opportunities for you to grow. So why does he, in this text that we just read in the book of James, why does he talk about wisdom? Because here is the thing, what testing does, it helps us to realize our need for God. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously. Why does he put that in that in the context of testing? It's because this, when we, when we think everything in our life is going well, every, I mean, we're nailing it and we're getting everything right, Who's going to get the credit when everything goes right in our life? Who gets the credit? We do. Yes, we give ourselves credit. No. But what about when things are not going well? What about when things are not going right in our life? Then who gets the blame for that? We blame God for that. Oh, how could God allow this to happen to me? How could have God just stood there and let me say something stupid to him like, hey, how can we have not, and how can we afford this? Don't you realize the cost? And he is God. How does that work in my life? We pray for wisdom because what we realize is this. We see God working in our lives and our hearts. Even in those moments that we understand that those are teachable moments for us. That what God is doing, that he is revealing something in our heart that we don't see. And what he's revealing to us is this. That we need Christ more than anything in this life. More than anything. To know his character and his nature. Yeah. You need him more than you need money? Oh, I know. That just kind of gives you a shiver up and down your spine, right? When you say, yes, 
Yes, you need him more than you need an education. I'm not saying it's one or the other, but you need him more than you need your education. You need him more than you would need even your physical health. You need him more than you would need a spouse. You need him more than you would need a boyfriend or girlfriend. You say, Mark, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just praying for a date. That's all I want is a date, you know, right? Yes, and so you need him more than a date. You need him more than anything, and it's difficult for us to see that. Why? Because our perceived needs within our lives, what we think are the greatest needs in our lives, somehow skew all of that so we can't see it very well. And so the purpose of a test is to make those things very clear to us. You see, if we don't have a test, then those things still stay obscured in our lives. And we don't see the need for change. We don't see the need for moving that from Philip to Jesus. We don't see that need in our life. because then, So the purpose of God revealing Philip's heart that day, right there in front of all of his friends, perhaps, and 5,000 other people waiting for a Hebrew Happy Meal, was simply this, right? Yes. Was to, was to show him his own heart. Oh. It's a test. And a loving God tests his children. They do. Why? Because a cruel God would allow you to walk through life blinded to the things that will keep you from moving along that line of Philip to Jesus. Only a cruel God would keep you in the dark in those things. So a loving God will place you in times in your life that will simply test you so that you will grow in him. And when you grow in him, you grow to that ideal that you become, you simply, you, you are becoming the person that God has designed you to become. It doesn't mean that when you reach that state, all the bad things in life cease to happen to you. Understand that. That, that, that's, not, that, that's not it at all. We still live in a very broken world. Yes, redeemed by Christ, but ultimately the culmination of that redemption comes at the second advent of his return. So we live in a broken world. But yet our purpose is to make him known, to become more like him, to move along that line this morning. And the thing that moves you and I along that line is testing. Man, it makes sense that a loving God would do that to Philip that day. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. I love this. He said, hey, there's a kid who has a lunch, but look what he says. But what are they for so many? You know, like, why did you point it out to begin with, right? There's like, is there a little bit of thought? Well, maybe Jesus could do something with that. Or maybe we can have lunch on this kid's, you know, on this kid's dime and everybody else can kind of wait for the sermon to come about. No, what it says to me is God is doing even more in others' lives there. He's doing more here in Andrew's life also. So never think that you're the only one going through a test. Never think that you're the only one going through a hard time, even though you're trying to follow Christ this morning. Understand this. We're all on the journey. We're all imperfect. God is working in all of our lives. 
To bring about the person that he desires for us to become. And here is the thing I have to think you have to understand before I get back to this text. Is this, that God loves you in the middle of the journey as much as he would love you when you are complete with the journey. Realize that. It's not like God is waiting for you to get to the end so he can really love you. No, he loves you as much as he will ever love you in your existence right now. Wherever you are on that spectrum between Philip and Jesus. He loves you greatly this morning. Realize that. So this is not a question of his love. Because he's already expressed that to you by testing you. Verse 10 says this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sit down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks. And I stopped for a moment and I thought about that this week. And I laughed because this, who does Jesus pray to? You know, think about it. I mean, who does God pray to? Who does God give thanks? And, it, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful teaching moment from Jesus. It's not like he's saying, you know, I want to thank me for the bread that I have today, right? Yeah, yeah, and amen me kind of thing. No, that's, that's not it. No, what he's doing, he's teaching us about the graciousness of the heart of the Father. It, he's modeling that for, for you and I. And he says that, He had given thanks and he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. The second thought is this. What is the plan within the plan for Jesus feeding the 5,000? There is a plan within the plan. And what we find throughout the book of John is that John never disconnects that of the spirit and and the the physical. He, He never does. There is a connection there that you can't simply break. Understand that. And he starts out in John chapter 1 and verse 1 by reminding us of that and that of the incarnate Christ, that he is both God and man, fully God, fully man. So there is a connection between all of this. What does that mean for you and I? It means that first the crowd came hungry. They were hungry. They wanted some food. They wanted some physical food. That was one reason why he fed them. Because that's the love of God. The second reason he feeds them, there is a spiritual reason here. Because this is Passover. And he has a message to give to them. The meaning of Passover comes from that of the book of Exodus. And whether you know the story or not, it's a powerful story. Read it sometime. But it's that of where the children of Israel are in. They're they're in captivity by the Egyptians. And so God has sent Moses. And there have been plagues on Egypt. And one of the last is this, that he sends the death angel over all of Egypt, both of the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And if you have not painted the doorpost of your house with that of the blood of a, of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, then when the death angel passes over, that, that a young child in your house dies. And so that's why it's called Passover. And so what Jesus is saying to them on Passover is he's serving them both for physical needs and spiritual needs is this. He's saying them this, that I am the Passover lamb, that I am the one that has come to fix what is broken in your life. Not just that of a marriage or a relationship or money or whatever, but I've come to fix what nothing in this world could fix. And that is the brokenness of your own sinful heart. I've come to pay the debt for what you could not pay a debt for. I've come to shed my very blood for your sin. And he's simply saying he's revealing himself as the Passover lamb. That has always been the plan. Because the message has always been Jesus is enough. That's the plan. But a loving God 
doesn't separate the physical from the spiritual. I love that because he knows us so well. They're physically hungry, but they're spiritually hungry. But they think the greatest need in their life is fish and bread. But the greatest need in their life is not fish and bread, but it's Jesus. And that's always been the plan of Jesus to come fill that place in our lives that nothing in this world could fill. I don't care how many relationships you get. I don't care how long you prayed for this person in your life. I don't don't care, listen, how much money you might get in life or the best job that you might land after college graduation, understand this. There is a place in your life that only Jesus can fill. And we need to hear that both as those that are following Christ today and those that are not following Christ. Because even those here this morning that are say they're Christ followers, you struggle with that yourself. Here's Philip. Listen, if if miracles had been the thing that could fulfill Philip's life, then when Jesus said, where can we buy bread? Then Philip's response would have been, wherever you say go, Lord, I'll go. You provide the money. But it wasn't miracles that fulfills his life. It's Jesus. It's an understanding of who he is. I think that's something that we have to really think about for a moment. That it applies to everyone in this room. It doesn't exclude anyone in this room. Whether we're walking with Christ or whether we're not walking with Christ. That the plan has always been to make Christ known. That he is the greatest need of our lives. So let's finish the story. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. And they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Verse 14, and when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, again, they're following the sign. This is the prophet who is to come into the world. They're equating him with that of Moses is what they're doing. Perceiving then that they were able to come, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's the last thing this morning before we pray together, and it's that calling him king and living like he is our king are, are not the same thing. They're not. Because here's what they do. In the end, they, they call him king. That, that's what they're going to call. They're going to call him king. But it says they're going to come take him by force. Why? They have their own agenda. They have their own plans. They think the greatest need within their life, the greatest need for them as a nation, as a people, is to have a physical king like David was, who he sits on a throne in Jerusalem. But that's not it at all. That's not the message here at all. Someday Jesus will sit on a throne, absolutely a physical throne here on this earth. But not at this point. He come to do something powerful. And he come to that of the being the redeemer of their their sins and their lives. And they can't see that kind of king. Why? Because they're blinded by what they think is the greatest need of their lives. Some of you, you came here this morning. For whatever reason, I am super glad that you were here. But you came here thinking, you know what? I'll just get God to fix this thing in my life, whatever that is. Because that's what you think the greatest need in your life. They thought it was a king. Whatever yours is, you can fill in the blank. But what happens in our life is it that thing that we think is the greatest need begins to obscure our vision of what really and truthfully is the greatest need of our life. And that is Christ and the glory, the presence of God within our lives. 
Yes, he does miracles. Absolutely. Every day you get up and breathe, it's a miracle in life because the air that you breathe is from the grace of God today. Understand that. And, and so realize that we do see miracles every day within our lives and we see those extraordinary miracles. Absolutely. But what I realize is this. Understand this. That the greatest need of my life in your life today is the presence and the power of God resident within us, moving us from that place of Philip to that place of Christ and growing in him. That is God's design for our life, and he wired us for that. It's ability to trust God with the wear of our lives. It's a gift of grace. We don't white-knuckle that with our own abilities but it's a gift of God to, to trust him. So this weekend, as I was praying over this, and, and I was thinking, Lord, you know, when they, when they call him king, what are they looking for other than that just, you know, th- there's something that they can't see because they think the greatest need in their life is that of a king on the throne in Jerusalem. So, so what is that obscuring? They can't see him. He is a king. There is no doubt. But he's a king of his own sovereign design. Listen. You can't take your agenda and lay it over God and it work. <laughs> Did you know that? Yes. You've had your agenda for, well, I've had my agenda for 60 years, maybe. Eh, when I was first born, maybe. only had an agenda was that to eat and evacuate. You know, that was kind of it, right? Yeah, that's what you're on your baby. That's the kind of way it works. But as you get older, you, you start having agendas in life. We've had ours, maybe I've had mine for 59 years or 58 years. Yes, can I tell you, God's had an agenda for your life. Even, and I say this because it's kind of odd, but even before eternity, if that's possible, God has had an agenda for your life. And that is to have a loving relationship with you and for his glory and his power to be resident within your life and to mold you into the person that he has designed for you to become. And that does not always line up with our agenda. It didn't with theirs. He is a king. But here's the thing about this king. He has a throne room, yes. But his throne room at this point was a place called Golgotha. It was a place of, it was a place of suffering and death. He is lifted up on a throne, absolutely in his own throne room. But his throne was a Roman cross, an instrument of torture. A a tree that's created by him as the creator of all things. His royal court that day was his mother and the other Mary and a remnant of disciples, including that of none other than John, the one that's writing these words to us, standing at his very feet. Understand that he is a king and that is was his throne and that was his kingdom and that and that that was his throne room. But yet there never has been another conqueror like him. There never has been anyone that has loved you as much as he loved you. There has never been another individual in this entire existence of creation that would give what he has given for your life. Even when you did not love him or follow him, there has never been anyone like him and never will be anyone like him. He is king of kings this morning understand that of his own sovereign design and so I surrender my agenda to him I surrender those things to him this morning 
So for a moment of reflection, would you just take a moment to, to just to bow your heads and close your eyes? And I don't always ask you to the, the eye-closing thing, but for a moment, just to kind of shut out everything around you for a moment. Because there are, there are so many things that, that buy for your attention. I think that we take a moment just to kind of pause in life. And so we ask the question, what does God want me to know? And I believe that today as we leave, God would want us to know the, the difference between the valid needs of our life and the greatest need of our life that is Him. And what does God want me to do? To trust him with the the where, because God has the how covered in our lives. To trust him. That you're moving along this journey between that of how and where. And that we trust him. It's not that we have to have all the answers but yet we have to have him. That is the key part here. And it's more than just knowing about him, but it's having an understanding of his character and nature and thus his glory and his presence in our lives. So where are you on the journey this morning? First of all, give God thanks for you're on the journey. If you're not on the journey, then I pray that what you sense in your life is the Holy Spirit drawing you and you make that decision to begin this morning. So we're all somewhere. So where are you? Father, We are your children today. You know everything about us. Father, you are so well aware of when we get it and when we don't. You're you're well aware, Lord, of those moments in our lives where we're leaning into you heavily. And in those moments in our life that we're very much pulling a fill up. continually bombarding you with the questions of how. God, first of all, may we understand that those moments in our lives are moments for growth and we trust you. But Father, may we trust you enough this morning to take a step closer to you, to trust you with some undisclosed area of our life this morning to realize that the how has been answered by you just because of who you are the where all we have to trust you there but as we move closer to you the greater level of trust in our life for you So may we take our agenda. May we 
just lay that to his side for a moment and trust you this morning, God. So open our hearts and our minds to you. Thank you for your goodness in our